As many of you, if not most of you, maybe even all of you know, recently we, we welcomed uh, to our family a new baby. Duke was born a month ago now, and uh, it'll be a little while before he's here. The doctor has recommended that we keep him quarantined for a while to make sure that during the winter months he doesn't get any disease that he doesn't need and so on. But, but you know, every time a baby is born, there's typically uh, some sort of announcement that, that's made or sent out, and, and uh, many of you know I sent an email to the church when Duke was born, and just to let you know that, and uh, the following Sunday we put up his picture and so on on the screen, and maybe you've received in the past or sent out in the past those little birth announcements, and uh, those things are, are kind of with electronic stuff sort of becoming a, a thing of the past, but, but an official announcement is typically made, and there's a birth certificate and all that kind of stuff, and, and it announces the, the vital information about the baby. When the baby was born, what time, how, how long, what, how much did the baby weigh, and so on and so forth. And, and, and it's a big deal. Uh, if you've got your Bible handy, turn with me. We're, we're not going to stay here, but turn with me to the book of Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 2, and I read a very, very familiar passage to, to most all of us, I'm sure. And we'll get the birth announcement of, of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, look at verse 8. In the same region, it's talking about the birth of Jesus, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And here's the announcement. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today a Savior, who is Messiah, Christ the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to people he favors. There's the birth announcement of Jesus Christ. The angels show up. Now listen, when Duke was born, I, I was not uh, able to send angels uh, to, to announce his birth. But Jesus, the Son of God, God in human flesh, was born, and angels show up to announce his birth. It was a huge, huge deal. Uh, each of the Gospel writers uh, focuses, obviously, on the life of Jesus. Matthew and Luke, in particular, include much of the story of His birth. And, and so we get this incredible announcement about this baby that's born. And you would think that if God Himself was going to come to earth, and He was going to become a person, begin as a baby, that He would include in His family line the most famous, the best, the greatest, the far and away most righteous people that have ever lived. And yet, when you turn over to the book of Matthew, where we'll look today, you see that that's not quite the case. Look with me in Matthew chapter 1. Flip back just to the left a little bit. In the first 17 verses, as we've looked at the last couple of weeks, Matthew chapter 1 lists the family line of Jesus. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is the Son of God. He does not carry with Him uh, the, the sinful nature of those people that are listed there. Uh, part of the fact that he was conceived in a virgin means that the, that the sinful human nature did not pass from Mary uh, to Jesus. So we know that. But at the same time, he has an ancestry. He has a heredity. He has a, a past highlighted by these particular people. And as I've mentioned to you the last couple of weeks, it seems a little bit odd that Matthew, uh, opening the story of Jesus, would begin with his family line, his genealogy. It seems a little bit odd that, that we could spend three weeks talking about uh, who who gave birth to who, and, and what difference does that really make? And yet, I really believe, as I've said before, that there's more that, than, than meets the, the eye at first. Things that we can learn that we might not first think of. 
And Matthew here begins, obviously, with the family history of Jesus, telling us the different characters that are involved. And, and so far, we've, we've looked at how the family line, I think, really speaks volumes. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that, that Jesus, being called in verse 1 and verse 16, the Messiah, the Christ, highlights the fact that, that when God became a man, He became our prophet, our priest, and our king. He's our teacher. He's also our sacrifice, our substitute, and, and He is our ruler. Last week, we looked at the fact that when God became a man, He proved that He is faithful. Because in each generation that is listed here, uh, there are times when God is faithful even when we are not. And we see that highlighted. God is faithful on the mountain when things are going well. It's because He put us there. He's faithful in the valley when things are not going well. He's there with us. He's faithful always to keep His promises. From the very first time when Abraham was given the promise of, of land, of, of, of descendants, and of blessing, to the time of the Messiah, all those promises were kept. And so we come to the final message in this three-part series on the genealogy of Jesus. And I want to give you a third guiding truth that we've, we've seen so far. What happened when God became a man? He became our prophet, priest, our king. He proved that He is faithful. And this morning I want us to, to concentrate on this particular truth, that, that when God became a man, He proved that He had a, has a plan for and that He died for people like you and me. When God became a man, you'll see that on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. When God became a man, He proved that He has a plan for, and He died for, people like you and me. I really think that when we look at something like the birth of Jesus, many of us can skim over that and figure, well, I know that story. Wasn't that great when I was so young and in Sunday school and you learned the story? Or maybe when I just read Luke chapter 2, your mind immediately goes to Linus on Charlie Brown Christmas. That's where my mind goes. He, he says it so much better than I can. He's perfect. You know, what a, what, a great, what a great scene there in that movie. And, and some of us sort of remember that fondly. Yeah, wasn't that a great story? Or it kind of warms your heart just a little bit. But I really believe, I really, I really think and, and, and believe, this is just why I decided to spend three weeks on this, that the genealogy of Jesus is not just a great story. His birth announcement is not just something for Linus to talk about. It's proof to Charlie Brown the true meaning of Christmas. But it is both a tremendous encouragement and challenge for us. And I realize that in a church our size, though it's not huge, we have lots and lots of people who need some encouragement, who need to be, oh, I don't know how you say it, I guess not patted on the back, but just sort of given some reassuring, uh, reassuring that God still loves you, God still cares, He's still there. I, I, I tend to, to preach in such a way that much of what I talk about is to be a challenge, a direct challenge to, here's how we should live, here's how we should respond to God. And, and at the same time, I don't want to miss the incredible encouragement and strength that comes from the truth about Jesus. And so as we look at this morning, this truth that when God became a man, He proved that He has a plan for and that He died for people like you and me, I want it not only to resonate with us as a, as a challenge, but also as a tremendous encouragement. If you're looking for some proof as to does God really care for, does God really have a plan for people like you and me, I want to give you in the genealogy of Jesus six different people that proves, I believe, and, and there are more, but six that I've selected, that proves that God has a plan for and cares for and died for certainly people like you and me. The first is Jacob. Maybe your name is Jacob this morning. Hopefully this will be encouragement to you. The first is Jacob. 
Look with me, Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. It says, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Of course, Jacob is a famous Bible character. And I want you to keep your place in there in Matthew, and then we're going to spend, as we did last week, some time in the Old Testament looking at some of these characters. So flip back with me to the book of Genesis. We'll kind of work in, in Bible order here. Look in Genesis chapter 25. So the point being, of course, that, that when God became a man, He proved that He cares for, loves for, came for, has a plan for, died for people like you and me. And I want us to look at some of those people who really are just like you and me. I think one of the things that gives credibility to the Scripture is the fact that God does not protect the heroes of the Bible. Their, their flaws, their warts, their sin, it's all right out there in front. I mean, you cannot read the Bible and say, well, uh, this, this particular writer must have just tried to, tried to portray these people as, as if they were perfect and so on. Not a single one of them, except for Jesus Christ Himself is portrayed as being sinless and perfect. I think that really gives credibility to the Bible, and I think it also gives us some encouragement to know that no one, except Jesus Christ, has ever been perfect. And it points to our need for Him, obviously, to be forgiven of our sins. In Genesis chapter 25, look in, in, in verse 24. This is the birth of Jacob and Esau. When her time came to give birth, they were, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out reddish, covered with hair like a fur coat. Imagine having a baby like that. The baby comes out, you know, Duke had a lot of hair. Dark hair, you know. Imagine coming out just covered. It says like a fur coat. How about that? They, they don't even need a blanket. They named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand. So he was named Jacob, and that means one who grasped at the heel. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. Now, you have from the very beginning, from the very first moment that, that Jacob takes a breath, that he's already giving a precursor to what's going to happen. In fact, before these twins were born, they're wrestling in the womb. And the promise is made that the older will serve the younger, that, that the younger brother will, will be given uh, the rights to the kingdom and so on that, he, that Abraham was promised, the, the generations to come. And here you have the, the hairy one comes out first, the younger one grabbing at his heel, and it's only the sign of some problems to come. Turn the page to chapter 27. And here we have Jacob and Esau grown up. Uh, the family problems remain. There has been a tremendous amount of playing favorites. Uh, parents, I, I hope that, that if you uh, have more than one child, that you will read some of the stories in the Old Testament. Read the story of, of Isaac playing favorites with his sons. Uh, read the story of Jacob playing favorites with his sons and see the devastating results. I have four kids, and I tell you what, it is hard not to do those things. I relate differently to all four of my children, of course. They are all four very distinct and different personalities. And yet I know from, from simple application of these scriptures what a dangerous thing it is to play favorites. So that's sort of the background to chapter 27. It says here, when Isaac was old, verse 1, and his eyes were so weak that he could not see, he called in his older son Esau and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. He said, look, I am old and do not know the day of my death, implying that it's, it's coming soon. Take your hunting gear, your quiver and bow, and go out in the field and hunt some game for me. Then make the delicious food that I love and bring it to me to eat so that I can bless you before I die. So here's a guy, older gentleman, knowing his time is drawing short, tells his oldest son, who is his favorite, go out, hunt, hunt some animals, make up that stew that I love so much, and then I will bless you before I die. Verse 5. Now, Rebecca was listening to what Isaac said to his son Esau. 
So while Esau went off to the field to hunt some game to bring in, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, who's her favorite, Listen, I heard your father talking to your brother Esau. He said, Bring me some game and make some delicious food to, to eat so I can bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now obey every order I give you, my son. Go to the flock and bring me two choice young goats. I will make them into a delicious meal for your father, the kind he loves. Then take it to your father so that he will eat it and may bless you before he dies. Jacob answered Rebekah's mother, Look, my brother Esau is a hairy man. This is great. He's a hairy man. But I'm a man with smooth skin. Imagine this conversation. Suppose my father touches me, then I will seem to be deceiving him, and I will bring a curse rather than a blessing on myself. His mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Just obey me and go get, go get them for me. So he went out and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made the delicious food that his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of her older son Esau, which were at the house, and had her younger son Jacob wear them. She put the goatskins on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she handed the delicious food and the bread she made to her son Jacob. When he came to his father, he said, My father, and he answered, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob replied to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may bless me. Now the story goes on. And the blessing is given to Jacob, the younger son, and he stole it. He deceived his father. His, his mother participated. Jacob begins his story as one who's grabbing at the heel of his brother, fighting with him in the womb, and later deceiving. Later on, we see in the story that he will steal the birthright uh, and, and also steal the blessing from his older brother. Now, those things are sort of, sort of foreign to us. We don't quite understand that. Let's understand that, that the birthright, the blessing, was to be on the older son. In fact, the older son was to get two-thirds of the family property, and the younger son would get the other third. So he was to get twice as much. It was a huge, huge deal. Jacob begins his life as one who's a deceiver, one who is a thief, one who, when he would get older and look back on his past, I'm sure regretted a lot of the moves that he made, created some major problems in his family. His relationship with his brother never really was going to be the same. In fact, his brother after this wants to kill him. Later on, they have a little bit of a reconciliation, but it's not totally clear in the Bible. If, if everything was totally made right, he created some major issues. Jacob began his life that way, and it, it's really not clear at this point in the, in the story there in chapter 27 if, if Jacob really is a follower of God. He seems to be from a family that follows God, but there's, there's, it's sort of unclear. Does he really get it? Is he really on this same page with the Lord? And then you come to chapter 32. Turn over just a little bit. In verse 24, Jacob here out on his own. And it's at night, it says in verse 24, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip as they wrestled and dislocated his hip socket. Then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. In verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and men and have prevailed. Jacob came to a point in his life where his identity needed to change. Where his name, in fact, was changed. He was once a deceiver. He was once a liar. Once a thief. Once a person who caused serious issues in his family because of his selfishness and his impatience. And later on, he meets God. And his name and his identity are changed forever. He becomes now a person who's not perfect. The one who wants to do his best to please the Lord. I think that's proof in the line of Jesus. And when God became a man, He came for people just like Jacob. 
He came for those who, in their past, were deceivers, liars, thieves, people you wouldn't want to be around, folks in your family you try to avoid. He came and He died for people like that. That's the first proof. The second proof is a lady named Rahab. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, it mentions Rahab. Now, it's interesting that Rahab should be mentioned in the line of Jesus. Because if you know anything about the Old Testament Scriptures and the story in the book of Joshua, what was Rahab's occupation? She was a prostitute. She was a prostitute. The Bible makes no secret of that. If you look with me in Joshua chapter 2, if you're in Genesis, just turn to the right a little bit. Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Joshua, son of Nun, sent secretly two men as spies from Acacia Grove, saying, Go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left, and they came to the house of a woman, a prostitute named Rahab, and stayed there. Now, this house most likely was a brothel. This was not just her home. This was most likely where they, they ran the brothel. And so here is a prostitute who comes face to face with the truth about God. The king of Jericho was told in verse 2, Look, some of the Israelite men have come here to investigate the land. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. But the woman had taken and hidden the two men. She said to them, or so she said, Yes, the men did come to me, but I don't know where they came from. At nightfall, when the gate was about to close, the men went out, and I didn't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan, as soon as they came, as soon as they left to pursue them, the gate was shut. Rahab has a very checkered past. A prostitute, obviously, is a person of ill repute. Someone most of us, if we know them, would, would avoid. A person with a bad reputation. A person who would not most likely be welcomed into many of your circle of friends. Someone you'd try to avoid at all costs, I'm sure. And yet she, of all people, is written into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. One who, when she comes face to face with the truth about God, begins to work on God's behalf as best she knows how. Would God justify her lying? Probably not. But she believed God and did all that she knew the God that she believed would want her to do. Later on in this story, these men make a promise to Rahab that when they invade the city of Jericho, that if she will, as a statement of faith and also identification, hang a scarlet rope from her window, that her family would be spared. You probably know the story. And so they march around the city, and they scream and shout, and the walls come down, and the men rush into the city to take Jericho. That scarlet rope is tied there. That cord is tied to her window. And she and all of her family are spared not just because of the goodness and the promise-keeping of these men, but because she believed their God. She had a change that took place in her life. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, she's mentioned as one of those of great faith. If you know the book of Hebrews, and chapter 11 comes to what has, has many times been called the Hall of Faith. These, these people that you look at and you say, absolute Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then there's Rahab. And identifies her in Hebrews as a prostitute who believed God. I really believe in Hebrews. It shows the fact that here's who she once was. 
here is who she is now. She's come face to face with the truth about God. That scarlet rope symbolizing her faith in God. She's remembered eventually for her faith in the past that God overcame. Rahab, I believe proof that when God became a man, He came for people like you and me. People who have past that we just soon forget. People who have made tremendous mistakes. People whose lives have been in the gutter. Folks who would say, if anybody really knew me, they wouldn't give me the time of day. Jesus came for you. Jesus came for you. A third person is someone we probably all know. His name is David. You have Jacob, you have Rahab, you have David in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 1. The story about David is really one with a lot of twists and turns. David begins as a young man killing a bear and a lion while he's protecting his sheep, ripping them limb from limb, the Bible says, with his bare hands. He later defeats Goliath. As a young teenage boy, he he takes out the giants. Then he becomes king. The youngest of all of his brothers, he's anointed to become king, and, and he takes the kingdom of Israel to new heights. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we get the twist in the story that happens right in the middle of this particular book. It says in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11, In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he reported, This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. She had just been purifying herself from uncleanness, and afterwards she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab, uh, how the, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the place, and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported that David, Uriah, didn't go home, David questioned him, Haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, The ark, Israel, and Judah are, following in, are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. The remaining part of this chapter tells what David does next. In a moment of desperation, trying to cover up his sin with this man's wife, he sends word to the guy's commanding officer, Put him on the front line, and when the battle gets fierce, back up. And leave him exposed. And what happens is exactly that. Joab receives the message from Uriah himself. And in the fiercest, fiercest moment of the battle, they back up. Uriah is struck down and he's killed. Word comes back to David. And he eventually brings Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, to be his wife. And then in chapter 12... You have the prophet Nathan, whom God told what had happened, show up on David's doorstep, knock on the door, 
tell him a little story about a guy who stole someone's lamb, gets David all fired up and excited, saying that man who stole what was from that innocent man, the only thing he had, that man should die. And in a moment that I would have loved to have witnessed, Nathan, you can imagine him pointing at the king and saying, guess what? I'm talking about you. David, consumed with guilt and overwhelmed, simply responds with these words, I have sinned against the Lord. David, the adulterer. David, the murderer. Then writes these words in Psalm chapter 51 after he's face to face with his sin. And he says this, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me against you. You alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sin and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled spirit. David wrote those words. After coming face to face with his sin, words of repentance, words that brought restoration from the Lord. I believe David being in the family line of Jesus, listed there in Matthew chapter 1, is proof that God cares about people who mess up, who seemingly destroy their lives, but who will turn back to Him in repentance. God proved that He will restore. Jesus, obviously the ultimate restorer, proves that no sin is beyond God's forgiveness, proves that the only sin that will send us to hell is a sin of unbelief. Once we believe in Him, then we are secure for all eternity. David is further proof. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 7, there's a man mentioned named Abijah. Some versions may put him as Abijah with an M on the end. Interestingly enough, in 1 Kings, uh, this man is mentioned, and very briefly mentioned. But I think it's interesting, in 1 Kings chapter 15, if you're following along, turn there. If not, just write down the reference. First Corinthians chapter, excuse me, First Kings chapter 15. Verse 1, it says, In the 18th year of Israel's king Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijam, or Abijah, became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Machah, daughter of Absalom. Abijam walked in all the sins his father had done before him, and he was not completely devoted to the Lord his God and his, as his ancestor David had been. Let me read that to you again. He walked in all the sins his father had done before him, and he was not completely devoted to the Lord his God as his ancestor David had been. 
Here's a guy who's caught in a circle, a cycle of family sin. Maybe you've got something in your family that's like that, whatever it may be. Maybe it's alcoholism or adultery or whatever it is that your family just over and over, for whatever reason, to repeat. Here's a guy written into the genealogy of Jesus Christ that seemingly never broke the cycle. That walked instead in the sins of his father. What does that mean? He repeated all the mistakes that his dad had made. As your kids get older, you ever told them, look, I just don't want you to make the same mistakes I did. Maybe some of you have thrown that line on your kids before. I don't know. I haven't done that yet. My kids aren't old enough to, you know, for me to even explain to them the mistakes I made, nor do I really want to. But you know, I'm sure his father, at some point, probably told him, look, just don't do what I did. And I was dumb. I made some really, really stupid mistakes. Don't do what I did. And guess what he does? Exactly what his father did. He walked in the sins of his father. And yet, and yet, he is a person who's mentioned in the family line of Jesus. You realize his, his son was a guy named Asa, whose son was a guy named Jehoshaphat, one of the greatest kings that Judah ever saw. God can overcome your family history. You are not bound to repeat the mistakes of the past. Some of us in this room are caught up in a cycle that we don't even understand. Depression, whatever it may be. Things that overwhelm us from our family. And we just think, goodness, why could I not have been born into a different set of genes? And yet I believe that the genealogy of Jesus shows that even someone who had trouble breaking the cycle is a person that God came for in the form of Jesus Christ. Someone that God used, had a plan for, and died for. You're not bound to repeat those same mistakes. Don't let your family history dictate who you are today in a negative way. Abijah walked in the sins of his father, but God was faithful to him, and God overcame all that, and still, through that line, produced Jesus Christ. A fifth person is a guy named Josiah. Josiah is a wonderful story. In the book of 2 Kings, you have a description of Josiah. He became king when he was eight years old, and he was a pretty good kid. How many of you would say that when you were a kid, you were a pretty good kid? Anybody in here? Oh, listen, some of your parents are here, aren't they? Don't you raise your Listen, I tell you what, I, when I was eight years old, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, and I was a pretty good kid. I was baptized at eight years old, my church there in Louisville. I was a pretty good kid. I can relate to Josiah. But it's interesting that later on, when he became the full-functioning king later in his teenage years, was when he really got it. It really started to click with him. He was a good kid, but he fell in love with God when he discovered the book of the law. There's a great story in, in 2 Kings chapter 22, chapter 23. Where, where they're doing some renovations on the temple and they discover the book of the law. Most people think it's the book of Deuteronomy. And, and, and they bring it to the king and he begins to read it. And his eyes are open to the protection, the provision that God brings through his, through his laws, through his decrees. And he begins, his heart begins to be drawn to God because he understands that the Word of God is not about keeping you from doing certain things. The Word of God is about protecting you and about providing the greatest life that you can possibly live, both here and certainly for all eternity. And Josiah begins to realize and understand the power in God's Word. And he went from being a good kid to being a godly man. All because he came face to face with the God that the law spoke of. 
God became a man, He wrote into His story people like Josiah, who maybe are really good folks, but really need to fall in love with God. And there's a difference. Then a final person I want to mention this morning is the earthly father of Jesus. His name, of course, is Joseph. In Matthew chapter 1, you got your place still held there. Right after Matthew lists the genealogy, he tells a little bit of the story, and he says the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way, verse 18. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered that before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what she has been conceived, what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord, by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel which is translated God with us. When Joseph got up from his sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son and he named him Jesus. Realize that Joseph, of all people, seems to be one of the more obscure and random figures in the Bible. Town carpenter from Bethlehem. Now, if you've seen movies or documentaries about the Christmas story, Bethlehem is always portrayed as this really bustling metropolis. It was sort of an outpost about five miles outside of, of Jerusalem that really housed probably shepherds and carpenters and just average people. When Herod sends in the, the soldiers to go and kill all of the, the babies two and under, there were probably just a handful of babies he was talking about, not many, not thousands and thousands, a very, very sparsely populated area. And here's Joseph, a nobody from nowhere. A town carpenter, an ordinary man, a righteous man who did the best he could to follow God, being given the incredible blessing of being the earthly father of God in human flesh. If that's not proof that God came for, has a plan for, and died for people like you and me, I'm not sure what is. An ordinary person in an ordinary town, around ordinary people, doing the best you can to follow God. And that's who God showed up to. Maybe you need more proof. Maybe Jacob, Rahab, David, Abijah, Josiah, Joseph aren't enough. Paul himself, the great writer in the, in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 15 says, here's a trustworthy statement. You write this down, you take it to the bank. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, he said, and I am the worst of them. He said, but I was shown mercy so that everyone could see the greatness of God in man. You want more proof? Look at your life. Look at my life. People who are undeserving of God's love and His grace. Folks who never in a million lifetimes could earn a single thing from God. And yet He can. And He has a plan for, and that plan included dying for people like you and me. When we hear the Word of God, I believe it calls for a response each and every time. That response certainly may look different each time you hear it. Sometimes it's an emotional response. 
Sometimes it's a, it's a very logical, thought out, yes, I agree with that sort of response. Sometimes it's a physical response that, that sometimes we need to be bold enough to stand up out of our pew and to walk down and begin to pray, either with a pastor, with one of our deacons or spiritual leader, whomever, with a friend, begin to pray. I don't know what it may be for you this morning, but maybe your response needs to be a name and identity change like Jacob had. Someone written into the genealogy of Jesus who once was a deceiver, once was a liar, once was a thief. And he came face to face with God and he was changed forever. That may need to be your response today. To cry out to the Lord and say, God, change me from who I am into who you've created me to be. That only happens by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That and that alone will change your name, change your identity. You cannot just effort to be better. God says our best efforts are like filthy rags to Him. Does that mean He doesn't want us to, to do our best? No, that just means that our best can't earn anything from Him. We receive the free gift of God of salvation by our faith alone. So maybe today your response needs to be a name change, so to speak. An identity change. From the old to the new. Or maybe your response is simply to, to trust Him like Rahab did. You say, I don't know everything there is to know about God. Guess what? Nobody else does either. But I know enough to know that what He's written is true. That when He came to earth, He truly was God. That He died for my sins. That He was raised again. That He reigns now forever in heaven. That if I place my faith in Him, that one day I will be with Him forever. And that while I'm here, He has made me new and given me abundant life on earth. And I need to trust Him. Maybe you, just on the information you know about the Lord, the truth you know about Jesus Christ, you would, just like Rahab, trust Him. You say, well, hold on now. Now, if people really knew me, they wouldn't want me in their church. Well, they wouldn't want Rahab either. A prostitute, someone with a checkered past. But guess what? God wants you. Jesus died for you. He came to earth for you. He loves you. Maybe like David, today your response needs to be one of repentance and restoration. Maybe today you're face to face with the fact that, you know what? I, I realize, as David said, my sin is always before me. It's always in front of my face. It never leaves me alone. I seem to do those things over and over again, and I know it. It's there. Maybe today, just like David, you'd say, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Restore to me the joy of salvation. Lord, change me. Restore me. Or maybe you need to interrupt a pattern of sin in your family and choose to go a different direction with the Lord's help. Maybe you look at the story of Abijah and you say, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to walk in the sins of my father, so to speak. I don't want to repeat those patterns. I don't want that to get me like it got my dad, like it got my mom or my brothers and sisters or my grandmother, whomever. I don't want it to get me. They tell you, your only hope is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can interrupt that pattern in your life. You say, how does that happen? Moment by moment, placing your faith in Him, walking in the power of His Holy Spirit as He fills you up with the strength that it takes to interrupt that pattern. You say, that sounds kind of far out. I'm not sure if I can do that. You can't, but Jesus can. It's the only chiller, the only hope that you have. Maybe today you just put a stake down on the ground. December 26, 2010, I'm interrupting the pattern of sin in my family. I'm interrupting this pattern that's been going on for years and I'm going to go a different direction with the Lord's help. And maybe your prayer to the Lord today is, God, I, I want that to be done. Lord, change me. Change my family from this point on. I told you before, my grandmother, my dad's mother, she's now the only remaining sibling of her several 
uh, Sydney, she was the only girl. She had, I think, five brothers, six brothers. And my dad tells me stories about his uncles. And the pattern of sin that just repeated itself from their father and his father. And it was my grandmother who decided one day when she met Jesus Christ, things were going to be different. And I stand here today not solely because of my grandmother, obviously, but in large part because she decided at some point, you know what? Things from this point on, as far as I can determine, as far as the Lord working in my life will be different. It is possible, but only in the strength of Jesus Christ. Maybe your response needs to be to fall in love with Jesus, fall in love with the Lord today, realizing from His Word how good and faithful He is, just like Josiah did when he came face to face with the law. It didn't put a bunch of restrictions on him. It opened his eyes to the goodness of God. That's what the Bible is about. Maybe today you need to fall in love. Maybe you've been good. You've been a good person. You've been doing a lot of good things. But on the inside, you're sort of cold and methodical. And you're sort of drifting and not really caring. Maybe today you need to fall in love instead of just being good. You need to fall in love with Jesus. Or maybe your response today, like Joseph, is to give Him your ordinary life, your simple, ordinary, mundane, it seems, life, and say, Lord, you use it however you want to. Most of us will never become famous. Some of us think we're famous. Most of us will never really become rich and famous. We strive for that. Oh, we want to be known so much. We want to be big fish in the biggest pond that there is. Most of us will never reach that. There's not a whole lot written about Joseph in the New Testament. Simple, ordinary man. He just said, God, use me however you want. God showed up, told him what was going to happen. He said, fine, go ahead and do it. Our response today needs to be just that. When God became a man, He proved that He has a plan for and He died for people like you and me. Folks who have sins in their past. Folks who are probably just very ordinary, living ordinary lives. Folks who need to interrupt things in their family. Folks who need to just trust the Lord. He came for and He has a plan for and He died for people like you and me. And I hope that is the greatest word of encouragement you could receive at this Christmas time. Because you don't have to be rich and you don't have to be famous and you don't have to be perfect to receive the love of Jesus Christ. In fact, a lot of those things will keep you from seeing your need for Jesus Christ. So I pray that this morning you'd respond accordingly to God's Word. Why don't you bow your head with me as we close? Maybe this morning you've seen yourself in one of the characters that we've highlighted. One of those six people who gives proof that Jesus really did come for. He really does have a plan for. He really does love. He really did die for people like you and me. And maybe you say, but you don't know me. It's not about if I know you. It's about what Jesus did on the cross to overcome all of that in spite of the fact that He knows you. You say, well, I'm just sort of ordinary. What in the world can I do for the Lord? I have no idea. Joseph didn't either. But maybe this morning you just respond to the Lord and say, God, I, 
I want to fall in love with you all over again this morning. Maybe my, my identity needs to be changed just like Jacob this morning. Maybe, Lord, I need to interrupt that pattern of sin or whatever it may be in my family. Lord, I need your restoration. I need to repent. Respond accordingly to the Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for the truth that we see in a simple genealogy, for the people that you wrote into your story, who show us that you came for, you have a plan for, you love, and you certainly died for people just like us. So Lord, we give you our ordinary lives. We give you our jobs and our families. We give you our church. We give you all the things that we do on a regular basis. Lord, we give you our past. We give you who we are today. We give you our future. And we say, have your way in us. Make us who you want us to be. Lord, I pray for the person this morning who needs to completely give their life over to you. Who maybe has been playing a game or avoiding you, but now feels you sort of pulling on their heart. But I pray they respond to you in faith, receiving your free gift of salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us, for coming to earth to not only show us how to live, but to be our substitute on the cross, to die for our sin, be raised again, to give us the chance at eternal life. May we not be so foolish this morning to turn that down. Change us, Lord. Make us who you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.